Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. On this podcast, you will hear inspiring testimonies, learn about messianic apologetics, and discover God's plan for Israel and you. Wherever you're listening, we hope you lean in, listen closely, and be blessed. Yeshua is not a journey we take alone. God's Spirit dwells in us. We also become part of the body of Messiah, the global community of people who believe in Yeshua. It is also crucial that we participate in a local church or messianic congregation. These are places for us to grow in our faith, worship together, study God's Word, love one another, and do outreach. Community can also be messy. We all still struggle with sin and selfishness. Sometimes, we say rash, unkind statements. Until Jesus returns, conflict is an inevitable part of our relationships, even with other believers. Handling conflict well is essential to healthy communities. So many families, friendships, and churches have split over disagreements. Today, we will discuss the role of community, how to resolve conflict, and heal division. Our guest is Scott Brown, who has served God's chosen people in the United States and New Zealand since 1987. Scott, welcome back to Our Hope. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you. So good to have you again. Uh, I thought you were a perfect fit for this topic, so I'm excited to jump into this episode. Uh, but first, I think last time you were on, we asked what your favorite food is. So we're changing it up. What is your favorite dessert? Before you were born, Baskin Robbins, which is the big ice cream company, oh yes, used to have um, a flavor of the month. I don't know if you know that. I remember And they that. might still do it. I don't know if they still do it, but uh, like 40 years ago, they come up with the flavor garlic ice cream. What? Garlic, garlic ice, ice cream. cream. Oh, man. That is that is definitely not my favorite dessert. It was the worst thing I've ever had. So was it sweet? <laughs> that as an intro. <laughs> it was garlic. It was cold, wet oh, man. garlic. Oof. I think they just ran they just ran out of options and they had to have something. So, nope, that is not my favorite dessert. My favorite dessert. Bar none is my wife's incredible coffee cake mm. with a cup of coffee. You're all invited over to my place tomorrow to have coffee cake. Oh, well, then we are heading right there. <laughs> Thank you. 
So last time we spoke, Scott, you had just moved back from New Zealand. I think you're in West Virginia right now. Is that correct? Yes, we are. Yes. So what exactly are you up to these days? What's ministry looking like in this season? So it's a great joy to be co-directing that work in New Zealand. Um, The busy season is uh, pretty much in the the end stages now, but we have some new projects coming up, which is exciting, new staff mm-hmm. and uh, new new projects for the future. Um, also, some very cool things are happening in that the, the work in New Zealand, which is really an accommodation ministry for traveling Israelis, mm. has sort of spun off into other parts of the world. So I'm loving the fact that I can help other teams start up in other parts of the world, including Japan, where we have a couple of yeah. Um, chosen people, ministry folks who are starting that work in Japan. We have a new work in Brazil. Um, so I'm just coming alongside as a coach and a mentor in those. And also my real joy is just discipling young men. Uh, I'm at the stage of life where I really need to be helping others succeed in their own goals. Mm. So, so that's a lot of what I do here is just uh, encourage and mentor uh, young men in leadership. That's awesome. And speaking of discipleship, we know that when we first come to faith, one of the most important things that we have to do, or one of the most important things for us to do is join a community with other believers. Why would you say it's important for followers of Yeshua to be part of a local church or messianic congregation? Yeah, wow. Huge question. I, I'm going to broaden the question, if you don't mind, and just ask, um, why is it important for followers of Yeshua to assemble together? Mm. Because this is the thing that seems to be the issue on God's mind in Hebrews 10. And yeah. it's there. He tells us, uh, he says, just don't forsake that. Don't forsake fellowshipping, assembling together. And he even gives us an idea of what should be happening among us when we gather. He says, mm. um, if I'm getting this right, he said, consider one another. He says, stir up love. He says, stir up good works. And he says, exhort one another, which means, you know, strongly encourage or urge one another. But what really gets me in the passage, and I think helps answer the question you're asking, is the urgency associated with gathering together. I mean, you're asking, why should we get together? And from the heart of God, he says, no, 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 this is urgent Mm -hmm. because we're told in the passage to make sure to do this, quote, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Mm -hmm. Now, the day in the Bible is a euphemism for the day of judgment. So what I'm hearing here, and I could be wrong, but I think what he's saying is that in light of the imminence of the day of judgment, in light of the fact that there will be a coming judgment, it is all the more reason to be gathering together in the assembly of believers, because in that context, we're actually saving lives. We're creating an environment where people are coming to know Yeshua. We're, we're creating an environment where people are growing and, and being discipled and strengthened in the faith, being conformed to the image of Messiah. Don't forsake this. It's saving and, and building lives. That is so important, Scott. And I find especially, um, I think nowadays, a lot of believers tend to be cautious about, you know, gathering with other believers. Um, I think sometimes we tend to get maybe easily offended, and we will talk about conflict later on in this episode. But when we look at the church and we look at the way we do services, um, we notice that 
many churches across the spectrum, regardless of denomination, have a lot of the same elements in them. We have worship, we have uh, tithes and offerings, and then we have the sermon. And a lot of that comes from Jewish liturgy and the synagogues. Uh, what are some of the Jewish roots of the church service, and why is it important that we as Gentile believers know about them? You know, your question, Nicole, reminds me of the first few times I was dragged, I mean, encouraged <laughs> to attend a Christian church mm -hmm. as a Jewish seeker. Uh, so here I am, this young Jewish guy, and being pulled into the church environment. Mm. And it was weird to me. I mean, I had expectations. Uh, I mean, my expectation was that I would understand nothing of what was said or being done and be very uncomfortable about it. Yeah. And that was largely true. But I, I distinctly remember thinking, what is all this Jewish stuff? <laughs> you know, I mean, especially the songs. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, do they even know what Hoshiana means? You know? mm, yeah. And they're talking, they're singing about the Messiah of Israel and the tabernacle and the Passover lamb. And I'm thinking, boy, these Gentiles are really confused. They think they're Jews. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's a reflection of the fact that everything we call Christian is coming out of Jewish culture, mm. Jewish, Jewish history, Jewish liturgy, Jewish humor, Jewish everything. Um, and that was a great eye-opener and revelation and really an epiphany for me as a Jew, uh, understanding that this thing called Christianity is really stemming from everything Jewish. Um, in terms of why is it important we know about what came from Judaism, yeah. I think it's just important to know for the sake of our, our calling to Israel, our calling to the Jewish people. I find in my own experience as a Jewish missionary or as one who is um, engaging regularly with the predominantly Gentile church, that the more they understand the Jewish roots of the faith and actually the Jewish roots of the assembly, mm -hmm. um, the more um, they love and understand the Jewish people and, and Israel. And also just it enlarges the profundity and the sense of history and heritage that we have in the church when we realize that what we're doing uh, the you know one prime example would be um, communion. I find that when Christians understand that this thing we call the Lord's Supper or the communion, that it it stems from uh, a, an, an ancient uh, ritual that was born in the heart of God, Passover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When Christians begin to realize all the history behind the meaning and the prophecy of Passover and how all of this is consummated in the event of the communion it just enriches the experience mm. and there's a sen sense of history and and uh and meaning that they never had before so i would say it's important to understand the jewish roots of the service if for nothing else to to drink more richly from its heritage scott i love how you you said drink more richly of the richness and when we look at the new testament I remember when I started reading more of the Old Testament, I was surprised by how many verses I came across that sounded like something I read in the New Testament. And I didn't realize how many times the New Testament actually refers back to the Hebrew scriptures. And one verse that's very important in Judaism is Deuteronomy 6.4, which tells us that God is Echad. So it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And that word for one is Echad. 
But the, this word carries the sense of a complex unity. It's like you have a cluster of grapes. There are many grapes that are united to make up one cluster. And here in Deuteronomy and in the entire Bible, God is presented as this unity of one. We read in the New Testament that this is defined more directly in describing the one true God as existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does God's nature reveal to us about community? Well, I got to tell you, I love this question because it's something I've been ruminating on for years. Mm. Um, the question is important because the community of believers worldwide is unlike any other community on the planet. Yeah. I mean, every other every other community is temporal and physical, you know, whether it's your golf club or your sewing club or your whatever. Yeah. But the body of Messiah is a spiritual community that exists as a spiritual phenomenon. It is eternal and it's supernatural. So, Nicole, I agree with your suggestion that this amazing supernatural community actually reflects the triunity of God, if that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. For, for example, have you noticed how the scriptures reveal the body in three dimensions? It's kind of like community, cause, and corporation. Yeah. And each each of these dimensions has its own metaphor in the New Testament. Uh, we're a family. That's the community aspect. We're an army. That's the causal aspect. And we're an organization. And that is the, um, that's the corporate aspect. I remember <laughs> when I was... Uh, first you know a, a brand new believer and coming to church and uh people would introduce me as hey this is my brother bob this is my sister sarah and you know he's he's introducing me to his brothers and sisters and i'm thinking man you know no wonder his parents aren't here they're exhausted this guy this guy is the biggest family i've ever seen in my life um we are very much a family and, you know the primary value there is love but we're also an army you know, we're, we're putting on spiritual warfare. We're engaged in a war. We have a real enemy. We have weapons of our warfare. We're also an organization. Um, that's the corporate aspect where um, we have roles and we have offices and we have duties and we're handling money and we have to have plans and strategies. It's all there. Mm. So, so that's a reflection, I think, of the triunity of God. We have this sort of triune nature and it's it's dangerously possible to lose balance in the expression of these three dimensions. For example, uh, I know of churches that are all community, but they're not engaged in the war or they're not, or they're lacking proper administration of gifts and roles. And as a result, they're very unbalanced. I, I know of a Messianic congregation years ago, they don't exist anymore. And one of the reasons they don't exist is because the leader was all about warfare. He was an incredible spiritual warrior. Mm. And and he was he, he had <laughs> he had the congregation out there every Shabbat, uh, you know, sharing their faith with people on the streets. And but the problem is there was no family aspect. Yeah. And without without that community aspect, they they finally dissolved. So I see this very, very um, evident, the triunity of God, the echad of God, seen in the, the body. In fact, the, these three dimensions of the body even correspond with the triune dimensions of Yeshua himself. Hmm. I mean, that, that body from 2,000 years ago, Yeshua, 
he was multidimensional in that he was a prophet, he was priest, and he was king. In other words, Yeshua had a triune expression in fulfilling the roles of prophet, priest, and king. Mm -hmm. And I think the same can be said of the body, his body today, which is us. We see within the corporate body, these supernatural expressions of Yeshua's prophetic and priestly and kingly aspects. And I bet you, Nicole, mm -hmm. that you could cite the names of believers you know who are the prophetic type, you know, the yeah. ones who they boldly proclaim this, the truth of scripture and they have no trouble rebuking bad behavior when they see it. And you could, you could cite the priestly type who love to pray and intercede for others. They're very pastoral. They stand in the gap between people and God. They reflect Yeshua, the high priest. And you know the kingly type too. Um, our president is one of those. That is the president of our organization. Gifted in leadership and administration, gifted in overseeing and maintaining order. And they reflect the King Yeshua. So we see the triunity in the community. We'll be right back. During these difficult times, we know how hard it is to hold on to hope. And we want you to know that Chosen People Ministries is here for you. If you have any prayer requests, our prayer team is standing by to receive them. You can submit your request at chosenpeople.com forward slash pray. Again, that's chosenpeople.com forward slash pray. Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Why do you think God made us all differently, and how can we function as a unified body? Yeah, you know, if only everyone were like you and me, Nicole, life would be so much easier. I mean, maybe. Maybe not you, just like me. <laughs> uh, no, actually, if people were all like us, it would be very dull and powerless. Um, and and the, the conversation we just had proves that the body of Messiah has to have diversity if we are to function well. Uh, has to have diversity if we're going to demonstrate the character and the values of a, an awesome, multi-dimensional God. Yeah. But, but you're asking a good question. That is, how in the world do we experience unity with all this diversity going on? And I, uh, I, whenever I hear the question or something like it, I always go back to 1 Corinthians 1. It's an amazing passage. In verse 10, uh, it's like the Holy Spirit is literally pleading with us to get along. Mm. And it's in the context of Paul speaking to the Corinthians, but he says, um, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, now, now get what he says here. 
that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Mm. <laughs> and you're tempted to think, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, have you ever been to church, Laura? Are you serious? Speak yeah. the same thing, no divisions, perfectly joined together. You know, you look at Acts chapter two, you see the believers continually in fellowship. They're breaking bread, they're praying together, and they're studying together, and they're daily in one accord. And man, if you're a child of God in this family, this army, this corporation, mm -hmm. there's something in you that longs for this kind of fellowship. And so the question is, how do you get there? So again, some will disagree, but I believe it's inaccurate to say that our, our koinonia, our spiritual fellowship, is in Messiah. Now, yes, in Messiah, we have life. You see that in Galatians 2. In Messiah, we have salvation. We see that in Ephesians 1. In Messiah, we're new creatures. And in Messiah, we have become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. But we're not talking about that stuff. We're talking about fellowship today. And our fellowship, the link that joins us perfectly together and enables us to speak and think and judge in a unified way, it isn't Messiah. It's Messiah crucified. Mm, wow. Now, that's from 1 Corinthians 1. And I'm suggesting that if there's only one thing that guarantees perfect unity in the midst of all of our necessary diversity, it's not our common practice of Messianic Judaism or Christianity. It's not our, our commitment to whatever, evangelism or discipleship. It's not our compatible theologies. It's not even our shared faith in God, the Bible, or the Messiahship of Yeshua. It is the tree upon which Messiah was crucified. Nicole, that is the basis of our bond. That is the secret to our unity. Being found in appearance as a man, Philippians 2.8, he, Jesus, humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When we apply that to the tensions that exist in the midst of community, we find perfect unity. Amen. If we try to emulate the one we're following, we're still in deep kimchi. We're not going to make any advancement. We'll have no success in overcoming our tensions and our disunity. It's either going to be the life of Yeshua emanating from us and loving through us, or we'll just continue in our remarkable discontentedness and disunity. But we have that resource. That's the, that's the wonder of it all. We have the resource of love by reason of an indwelling spirit. Yeah, that's right. Scott, the, the unifying factor between, I would say, Messianic congregations and Christianity as a whole is our faith in Yeshua. But one thing I've noticed working at CPM is that a lot of people don't know about Messianic Judaism. I've spoken to different people and they've never heard of it. And then if you go to the Jewish community and you talk to them about Messianic Judaism, they don't see it as a sect of Judaism either. And so it can be tough for the Messianic Jewish community. I think they kind of feel maybe a bit ostracized. How can we as Gentile believers cultivate community and better support the Messianic community? Hmm. Well, if we're talking about cultivating community, for example, between the Gentile church and Messianic congregations, Nicole, I'm one of those small-minded believers who actually believes that the Bible contains all the wisdom we need <laughs> to, live, to live life successfully. So I would go there to the Bible to answer that question. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, unless I'm missing something, it doesn't appear that God recognizes a distinction between the Gentile church and Messianic congregations. Mm-hmm. Um, don't worry, I'll get to the practical bit, but I just to lay some theological groundwork, God definitely distinguishes between Gentiles and Jews and the church in Israel and regenerated and unregenerated people. But when it comes, when it comes to the universal faith community, um, he sees it as one new man. And of course, I'm referring to Ephesians 2, um, verses 13 to 16, which talks about that middle wall being broken down between Jew and Gentile and this new organism, literally an organism. I mean, you and I and all the rest of the believing community, we have connected tissue. We are literally uh, the, the blood and the bones and the body of Messiah. We are one new man. But your question is a good one because it acknowledges a very practical challenge, namely uh, cultivating community among Gentile and Messianic faith communities. In my experience, um, one solution to bridging that gap is very similar to the solution for bridging the gap between Jewish people and the gospel. The, the same problem exists between two, both rifts. Uh, I can tell you as a Jew, uh, we have some huge rocks, we the Jewish people, and particularly non-believing Jews, we have some huge rocks in the garden that need to be removed before gospel seeds can take root. And you know what they are, uh, big rocks, like, uh, you know, Christianity is the antithesis of everything Jewish. Jews can't believe in Jesus and remain Jewish. Uh, the, New, the New Testament is anti-Semitic. Um, the fact is we Jews are harboring some significant myths about Christ and Christians and Christianity. And once these boulders are removed, bridge building is so much easier. And it's the same with bridge building between churches and congregations. Uh, There are these boulders and some of these boulders need to be removed and some of these myths dissolved. Uh, For example, many churches are they're just lacking understanding of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. And, and many Christians, for lack of exposure to Jewish people, are harboring some very dangerous misbeliefs, like uh, Jewish people are hostile toward Jesus. No, that's not true uh, entirely. So my point is that we need to be about the business of removing some of these boulders. And once that's done, I find the Holy Spirit uh, begins to bridge the, that gap and build those bridges. Uh, between Gentile churches and Messianic communities. Uh, I've seen unbelievable change of attitudes. Many times we who are Jewish workers in the Christian world are the first Jewish people that Gentile believers meet. Yeah. And so when they, when they begin to see that, oh, we're very much like you, we share the same faith and, and, uh, some of the things that kept us from accepting Yeshua are some of the very same things that kept you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those myths break down, those, those walls come down. Yeah. But Scott, I find one of the biggest hurdles to building community, whether it's between the church and Messianic congregations or between individuals within one single congregation, is the fact that conflict gets in the way. You know, we're human. Inevitably, at some point, we're going to say something that might offend someone. What does Judaism teach about conflict resolution? Oh, Nicole, wow. It's a good thing we have four hours to discuss this. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> Judy, I, I'm 
presuming you're referring to rabbinic Judaism, which yes, contains yes. an enormous body of rabbinic literature on every subject native to human relationships and conflict resolution being among the biggest. So uh, if you know anything about Judaism, you know that it is all about diversity. And the Talmud itself, which is ancient, uh, contains just um, lots of streams of ideas about everything from worship to marriage to business to um, sex to conflict resolution. Yeah. And, and therefore, there is no definitive response to that question. But just one thing I would say in a broad brush sense that rabbinic Judaism speaks to the issue uh, comprehensively, conflict resolution. But I think I, what I find it's largely missing that that is not missing in the body of Messiah is that the reason for conflict resolution has to do with some holy and divine details. Meaning, one of the reasons, Nicole, when you and I have a fight, you know, we have these bitter fights every day, right? You and I? Yes. Yep. That's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> for, you, for you listening, I love Nicole and I think she loves me. So. I, there hasn't yes. been any kind of conflict. But if there were, if there were conflicts between us, it has divine ramifications. It actually places a stain on the testimony of God himself. We are ambassadors for Messiah. And therefore, the way we relate with people, the way we conflict with people, and the way we resolve those conflicts actually speaks to the very character and nature of God. His own reputation and testimony are on the line. In Judaism, there is a lot of teaching and good teaching about practical ways to resolve conflict. And those Yomim Nora'i, those days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are given toward conflict resolution, it's yeah. a big deal. It's a very big deal. And there's good training on how to do that. But I think it lacks, I'm speaking personally now, mm-hmm. it, it lacks the kind of power or, or inspiration uh, that inspires me to resolve conflict, that compels me to resolve conflict, because I realized, wait a minute, this is more than just me and you. This is the corporate us. And it's yeah. even bigger than the corporate us. It's not only affecting the body, it's actually shaming God. Mm. And with that, you know, even if I don't like you and I don't want to talk to you and I don't want to resolve this conflict, when I realize God's take on this and it's, it's, impact on him then i'm compelled to do what's uncomfortable uh, to lay lay down my arms and try to resolve this thing that is a distinct difference between rabbinic judaism and if you will biblical judaism or christianity so sky in light of what scripture says about resolving conflict what are some strategies we can use from the Bible to de-escalate a tense situation? Wow, uh, the, the Bible is just packed with practical advice. What comes to mind is uh, the proverb that says, a gentle word turns away wrath. Mm. It's, a, it's a very simple concept, but it's astounding how it's an equation that always works. Uh, I'm thinking of a friend, one of my Bible teachers who's now with the Lord and but he tells the story of um, a time that he and he Bob is a, was a very gentle, soft-spoken, lovely man. Mm-hmm. But he was out he was out somewhere, just walking with one of his kids, and this guy approached him who had something against him, and he's screaming. I mean, screaming to the point where there's a crowd gathering, thinking oh, wow. 
wow, there's going to be fisticuffs here, you know? And, and this guy's yelling, he's sweating, his face is red, he's just enraged. And by, Bob walks right up to him and, and looks him in the eyes and says, oh, wow, sir, you must really, really be hurting, aren't you? The man wow. crumbled to the ground. I mean, literally fell to the ground, sobbing. And in that moment, Bob was able to pray with him and actually lead him to faith in Yeshua. It was a gentle word and it completely uh, disarmed the, uh, the anger and the wrath. And that's an extreme example. If you can genuinely respond to anger with gentleness. In fact, that reminds me of another passage. It's in Galatians 6 verse 1. Galatians 6 1 addresses how to approach someone who's overtaken in a sin. So they're, they're caught, this person is caught in the web of sin, which usually means conflict. The, con, the, the divine counsel that's given is, is this. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, mm -hmm. considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. First of all, we approach that person spiritually. And by the way, just a few verses before, it explains who is spiritual. It's one who walks in the spirit and not in the flesh. Number two, you are to approach that person with a view toward restoration, not toward judgment. Third, uh, a spirit of gentleness. And speaking of humility, of meekness, of kindness. And finally, this is a real big one. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Mm, yeah. I, I find that I find that when I'm the angriest at someone, I'm angry because I recognize something in them that is also in me. And and that's why that's the genius of this statement. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. But once again, weakness is key. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words: "The elimination of the weak." is the death of the fellowship. What this is saying is you get rid of weakness, you get rid of fellowship. And I think you'll find that wherever there is genuine community, uh, there is, it is gathered around weakness. I mean, this, this thing we call communion, where we handle elements, what are they? Elements of strength or weakness? Weakness. Yeah. The, the elements that we handle in the Lord's Supper are elements of shed blood and broken body mm. and jesus says whenever you get together that's fellowship whenever you get together whenever you commune i want you to remember that that's that weakness not strength i don't want you to remember my resurrection no your communion is built around weakness and nicole i think you would agree that the weakest moment in the history of the cosmos was god hanging dead on a tree but as a result of that weakness, the entire world has come together. You want to de-escalate a tense situation? Come in with weakness and not with strength. Scott, I'm literally crying here. <laughs> that was amazing. What you said, it reminded me of, we, we have weekly chapels for headquarters and we invite different people to speak. And Robin, who's on our staff in Israel, um, she spoke a few months ago about forgiveness and she said she had recently done a, a course about forgiveness and how um, one of the points that she learned was that 
it's not just acknowledging it's acknowledging your brokenness and the brokenness of the person who hurt you and when mm. we I think when we get to that place where when we see somebody who offended us as another broken human being who God loves and who Jesus died for that really can change our perspective on the whole situation and it kind of reminds us that our our battle like it says in Ephesians is not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities How do we decide what is worth fighting for? Because I think most of the things we fight about, we should forgive, I would say. A lot of the things we fight about, if we really take a step back and evaluate, it may not be earth shattering or really important. So how do we know what is worth fighting for? No one's ever asked me that. That's such an interesting question. Um, (laughs) Maybe this is a good time to bring up the fact that some conflicts are actually necessary and maybe even essential. Um, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul is pleading with the Corinthians, and he says, uh, pleads that there be no divisions, you be perfectly joined together, same mind, same judgment. By the way, Margie and I have just moved to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, which is the site of a number of historic Civil War battles, and there's mm-hmm. a church There's a church near our home called Battlefield Baptist. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway. Paul's heart is breaking over their disunity. But in the midst of his rebuke in chapter 11, he says something that to me is absolutely jaw-dropping. And it relates to your question. Verse 19, there must be factions among you. In other words, there must be conflicts among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Oh my goodness. This to me is one of those moments when God lifts the veil, you know, and gives us a peek into the Holy of Holies. Paul's saying, I really want you guys to get along, but I am not promoting unity at all costs. In -hmm. fact, he says, disunity and conflict are actually necessary right now at Battlefield Baptist because these these conflicts are going to reveal something that we wouldn't otherwise discover. And that is who among you are the unashamed, qualified truth handlers. Honestly, there's, there's no fight worth fighting if you must do it in the flesh. I, I think it's true that anything I'm fighting for, regardless how righteous it appears, if it's driven by self-centered goals, the fight is simply not justifiable. Uh, the, the only confident answer I can give you to the question of what's worth fighting for is honestly to meditate on what the Holy Spirit means when he tells us to fight fight the good fight of faith. Uh, it requires um, conflict. But in 1 Timothy 6 and elsewhere, in 2 Timothy, he, he says, I fought the good fight. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the fights worth fighting. Amen. So Scott, we have one final question for you. And the reason we wanted you to be our guest for this episode is because you mentioned last time. And you also mentioned earlier on this episode how you and your wife have been very intentional about opening your home and cultivating community because you've realized the spiritual fruit that it bears in your life. So how has living in community shaped you personally? Mm, Thank you for asking. Uh, I heard someone say that the church is much like 
peanut brittle. It takes a lot of sweetness to hold the nuts together. Uh, <laughs> and I have to say, uh, without the community uh, carrying me and bearing down on me and encouraging me and pummeling me and wounding me and healing me, honestly, I would remain just a self-centered newborn baby in the Lord sucking milk from a bottle. Mm -hmm. um, there is simply no overstating the power of community dynamics and being scrutinized. I think, Nicole, that's a big deal. And I mentioned this when I told you I had 60 people over the course of 10 years living with my wife and me, uh, and for the purpose of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And that's, that's why we did this. We needed help on our campground, but we also needed help in growing up. And, and to have people sometimes five at a time living in our little three bedroom home with one bathroom and, and uh, oh, wow. doing, doing evangelism and, and serving 200 people on the campground and, you know, all kinds of things, living life together and praying together and being together, scrutinizing one another and challenging one another. It is so powerful in terms of disciple making. So, yeah. I liken, I liken this whole thing, if you will, the community to a bicycle wheel. Uh, can you picture a bicycle wheel right now? Yes. You know, you got the hub and you've got the spokes and you've got the rim, right? So mm -hmm. what, when you look at the wheel, you see a bunch of very tense spokes that are uniquely positioned. Now they're going in every direction, right? Now, all this tension and diversity is a really bad thing for the wheel, right? No, it's a really good thing. In fact, if there wasn't all this diversity and tension, that thing would implode. It would crumple as soon as it was subject to pressure. In other words, the tension and the diversity are critical. And the key to the success of that wheel is that all of those spokes are fastened to a single pierced hub. I think mm -hmm. the very same principle applies to our relational spheres. Community is held in tension for some very good reasons. It actually strengthens the integrity of our fellowship. But the key to the success of spiritual community is that, that we remain fastened to our hub, the pierced Messiah. Col Colossians 1 tells us that in Him, everything is held together he's the integrity of the universe and as that wheel so beautifully illustrates the closer all of us tense spokes get to that central pierced hub the closer we get to one another as well For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Messiah, and individually members one of another. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. We need each other. God created community on purpose, and we get to experience both the joys and hardships that come with that. While conflict is never fun, if we yield to God's Spirit, 
He can use moments of disagreement and tension to ultimately make our relationships stronger and produce spiritual fruit in our lives. As followers of Yeshua, let us remember our collective purpose to be light in this world. Jesus told us in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. Let us know how this podcast has moved you. We would also love if you can share it on social media with your friends and family. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Our Hope, featuring Scott Brown. This episode was written by Rachel Larson and edited by Grace Swee. This episode was also created thanks to Dr. Mitch Glazer, Abe Vasquez, Kyron Bautista, and John Bautista. I'm Nicole Vaca. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out OurHopePodcast.com or ChosenPeople.com. You can also support our podcast by giving today at OurHopePodcast.com slash support. See you next time.